welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Bala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to join us uh, on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we will do our best to answer them live. It's uh, my privilege to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and often I see him now on CNBC and Fox Business, so he's now a TV personality. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. Um, not only is he a digital evangelist, he's one of the thought leaders on not only Twitter, on technology, on society, on giving back. Uh, and of course, you're seeing him also on TV, as well as in lots of speeches, keynotes, and of course, customer visits for where he's working with. So, but this show is not about us. This show is about the cool people that are doing interesting things, disruptive items, uh, transforming the world, and serving as change agents. So who do we have first at the top of the hour. It's our privilege to have Sharon Liu, Senior Policy Advisor in the Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology, where she leads post-secondary education innovation in, uh, initiatives. Sharon's current projects include exploration of education blockchains, the EDU 2030 Higher Education Ecosystem Challenge, and the development of federal open education and data initiatives. Sharon is the author of the Higher Education National Education Technology Plan that focused on the themes of lifelong learning, equity, accessibility to support the assertion that technology must serve the needs of an increasing diverse group of students seeking access to higher quality education. Prior to joining OET, Sharon oversaw the design and implementation of Department of Labor's $2 billion trade adjustment assistance community college and career training grant program the largest federal investment in post-secondary innovation and systematic infrastructure change. You can follow Sharon on Twitter at TheSharonLu, T-H-E-S-H-A-R-O-N-L-E-U. Welcome, Sharon, to Disrupt TV. Hi, it's been, going to be really fun, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Hey, thanks a lot for sharing this, right? A lot of people don't understand um, that we've got a whole, a whole section that's focused in the government of getting people and using transformational technologies to help people learn better, continuously learn in the post-secondary world. Um, tell us a little bit about the role, how you got started, and what's your background uh, to get you to the Office of EdTech? Um, this is a really interesting question that I never nail on the interview um, portions of my life. So um, I'm going to say this in a, and I think you'll all understand this, um, a disappointment to your Asian parents also kind of way. Um, my career is very nonlinear. Um, I did start off um, on the proper track, um, did have a molecular biology degree and was thinking <laughs> that I would do some kind of medical researcher career. And so um, as I did that, um, a lot of what I studied um, was interesting, but then um, I, I read about a project when I was doing a science policy internship about how not only is science interesting, but it actually can be used um, for good. And so I started working on a project about science in development, and so started getting into a little bit of the policy space there. Um, so I studied a little bit of econ, um, 
And then I got a job just doing data analysis um, for various different organizations. And so um, the Department of Labor um, needed data analysts. They do quite like their data. And so worked a lot on data projects there um, before they said, hey, let's do some policy on data, right? And I realized that policy in um, the big P policy kind of way involves a lot of lawyers and it's not exactly um, as fun as it seems. And so got into program management and started working on that grant program that was um, an enormous amount of money. And um, I guess we worked a lot with our colleagues at the Department of Education. And so people thought, hey, maybe she knows a little bit about education and did a detail here. And I guess it's stuck. So that is where I am. Um, <laughs> well, we've got a we've got a digital artisan here, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But my parents are still trying to ask me if I want to going back to med school. So I started out in a med program, did public health. Well, I don't know. I have a master's in public yes. health. Tell me what I'm doing. So I'm hanging out with Vala Ashar. It doesn't get any better than me. So, yeah, but yeah, no, this is awesome. Thank you for that background. I'm an electrical engineer, undergrad and grad, and an accidental CMO, and now a storyteller at Salesforce. So. I love your uh, career path, but we're bringing our parents together all for dinner so that they <laughs> I don't want to be there for that, honestly. <laughs> I overheard my mom tell a bunch of uh, folks uh, recently that my son's an electrician. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> okay. I don't That's really, you know, I think, uh, which, I, by the way, I would love to have those skills. Um, can you, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the overall strategy of, of, of the Office of EdTech and, you know, what type of policies uh, that, that you and your team are pursuing? I love the fact that we're going to talk about blockchain. So certainly this is a yeah. forward looking, you know, organization that's really looking to lean into technology to improve student success and, and education overall. So it's great. Okay, so let me just give you a little bit of background first on our, our team and some of the work projects that we do. Um, and then sort of as I describe how we work, I think um, you'll have a little bit more insight into why we're interested in blockchain and where we hope to go with this from here. Um, so essentially, um, our team is meant to work within the department um, and across the federal agencies and with stakeholders in the field to think about the question of how do we use technology effectively. Mm. And what does that look like? And so when we say effective use of technology, obviously we mean within a classroom, there are um, ways to improve teaching, help students learn better, assess more accurately, but then also within a school, right? Thinking about an institution, how to reach out to um, students that are traditionally difficult to serve, that may be lost. So technology plays a huge role in that. But on, on another level though, across all of the different types of schools and institutions, there's a way that technology can also help us rethink how we structure the programs, um, the administrative, like just the entities and the processes within all of education as an ecosystem, right? And so we always talk about technology as enabling um, all of the time everywhere learning. Right. And this is a trend, not just for us, not just for me, because I'm undecided on my life plans. Right. But because um, we know that people learn differently. Um, we know that there are now, I think, more more ways that people can learn things. So obviously within school, so formal education, but informally outside of school, mm -hmm. um, on the job, at the workplace, um, online, through peers, right, through mentors. And so the question is like, what is the role that technology can play in helping students bring that all together and create their own identity based on all of the things that they know so that they can represent themselves to the world better, right? So um, as a strategy, so how do we get to that like big goal? So I think table stakes, um, because it's 2019, 
um, is the internet, right? And so mm -hmm. there's a big concern. Um, in 2016, our team started to work on something that we called the Connect Ed Initiative, which was to connect 98% of all schools to the internet. And not just any old internet, broadband, right? Not um, internet on the phone. Um, and we've made tremendous amount of progress on that. But I think as a nation, there are still some issues that we need to deal with. So for example, there have been a couple of studies recently that came out. Um, last year, um, the Department of Education's Institute of Education Studies put out a study on the homework gap, right? So showing that um, for eighth graders, for example, um, students who don't have broadband at home did significantly less well on reading, math, and science. So all of the important things, right? Then their peers who have internet at home. Um, there's another study that the ACT Center of Equity put out, I think a couple of years ago, very similar thing focusing on devices, right? So there are, um, I think they said something like 40% of black students and 35% of students who live in poverty only have access to one device at home. And that device is usually a cellular phone, right? So they're accessing a cellular 5G network or a 4G network, but they're not actually on broadband doing their homework. And this is really important because you see even this week, Pearson said we're doing digital first, right? So students who can't turn in their homework, who can't access the digital materials do significantly less well. So what do we do about this? Um, um, our team, so not myself personally, but others on our team co-lead the interagency working group on broadband access. So this is um, work with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Department of Interior, the USDA that focuses on rural areas. Um, the FCC and a number of other agencies um, that focus on learning, but also on reaching that population that's very difficult. Um, and so we are working on programs collaboratively together that will accumulate in a broadband regional, a national broadband summit and a series of regional broadband um, summits that will occur um, starting later this fall, right? So this is sort of like collecting all of the resources that are available to federal entities and thinking about how can we turn that to actually serve people who are very difficult to serve, um, giving them access and opportunity as well. Um, now, is there like you know, a- this is, this, is, this is great, I was gonna say, this is some great initiatives, right? I mean, especially yeah. the access. We see a lot of issues on the Native American access and, mm -hmm. and that whole Pearson announcement last week was, or this week was, was, was huge, right? There's no more textbooks. They're doing everything on digital courses and digital courses. So if you're on a really bad connection, how are you ever going to be able to catch up? And post-secondary is interesting because, you know, when you are a residential uh, student on a campus, you have m many more resources than you, when you are in, in like the fifth grade and you have to go home at the end of the day. Or even if you are a community college student and you work for part of the day, but then you don't stay on campus because you have other family obligations, right? So this is, I mean, this is not because, sorry, I'm not saying that digital first is a bad strategy. I think that digital first is an interesting strategy but one where we have very important questions to ask, especially for if we are concerned about providing everyone opportunity equally. And so, this is an interesting point because like, I mean, the, the question I was gonna ask you next was really about how does the Office of Ed Tech pursue innovation while being responsible to the public? And here you guys are balancing both parts of the view, right? Yeah. Digital, digital course books are great. It drives down the cost, it drives down the access, you can innovate faster, not to print all these big ass you know, books sent out to people. But on the other hand, if you don't have access to yeah. broadband, right, then, then you're at a disadvantage, right? And, and, and this That's is the right. policy implications. So are there other areas like this where you guys are just, you know, showcasing how you can balance out these policy conversations despite all the lobbied interests that are back there? 
Well, okay, so I'm not going to leave the broadband thing for another minute, and then I'll go to the digital learning resources. But, um, you know, we did actually get involved in like sort of formal policymaking in this area as well. So what I described was sort of like a, our collaborative approach to the work, right? So you figure out who all of the different interest groups are, and you get everyone solving the problem together. And I think that's a really important approach. So it's not just federal agencies, but also groups like Shelby, um, Internet Superhighway, all of these groups that are doing great work in this area. Let's all solve together. But at the same time, the FCC did put out a rule, right? So over the, actually just last week, they made a ruling. They decided that instead of having a dedicated education broadband services spectrum, that they would now auction it off to private the private sector, right? And so we got involved. We wrote a letter um, sort of asking the FCC to please reconsider this because, you know, the private sector is great at innovating, right? Which is like what kind of what the other half of what we're saying. And we want to encourage that innovation. But at the same time, there are some sometimes it is appropriate for the government to reserve a little bit of resources to help people that the market does not always help because that's not the incentive of the marketplace right the market is to give um i guess okay so i don't want to get in trouble by um invoking like um john oliver or anything like that right um but you no, know but but, but but no but there is a point yeah. there right i mean there's certain cases yeah. where um the market economics might not drive a longer term investment uh and a public good right yeah. and that's what you're trying to express here so yeah and it's also so, important to ground us because last december ray myself and a group convened to celebrate uh 50 of the world having access to the internet yeah so the thing we take for granted when we talk about machine learning blockchain augmented and virtual reality all this cool stuff Half the world is in on the internet. <laughs> and 13% uh, of US adults don't have internet access the last time I saw Pew Internet report. So mm -hmm. you're grounding us, Sharon. It's great to remind us that as we, you know, forward-looking folks try to, you know, chase the next big trend, there's folks that just can't do their homework, which is just, yeah. you know, it's super important. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about EDU 2030? Uh, what is that all about? Yeah. It's, I love this. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great one. And learning. So can you, can you teach our audience about this, this ecosystem challenge? Okay, so this, um, again, is sort of our, our little strategy and our theory of change here is that um, it's actually not a dichotomy between innovation and actually serving underserved students, right? It's actually there where we find sometimes the most innovative um, opportunities, right? And so we said, well, what does education look like in 2030? Um, so this is, um, so we sort of, we did this last year, so it was um, about the right time frame to think about, right, because it's not rocket ship cars, but it's also not next year where you still think that your, you know, budget is being approved for a new computer, right, so somewhere in the middle, um, what would you do to actually help students um, at all stages of their learning. So we focus this on post-secondary education and we ask the question, what would it look like to actually empower individuals to be agents of their own lives, right? You know, economic stability, prosperity that looks different when you're 18 to 24 to 45 to like 60. So at each of those stages, what do you need in order to curate um, your own life, right? So can you get an opportunity to work based on what you already know? And how do you record and share that information with others? Um, how do you um, 
how do you tell people like what you want to study next? Like, how do you get into school if you've never been to school before? Um, I, I think one of the most fun things reading this this year, as um, some of the people pointed out during the competition, is there are these people who are like in their 80s that are getting their bachelor's degree and walking down the aisle. And I'm like, wow, that's so fun. Like when I'm 80, I'm actually going to be watching TV um, or maybe it's being implanted into my brain directly. I don't know that I'm not like, you know. <laughs> It's the OTA update. It's just, it's right there. It just goes straight in. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. well, Elon Musk is going to help with that. He just oh, oh, definitely, definitely. Um, no, that's awesome. I mean, but, but we see a lot of this experimentation, right? I mean, and, yeah. and you're sitting at the intersection between policy, public good, education, right? And, and trying to help people dissect, you know, what's possible or not. So let's talk about the hot topic in the room, right? We got a little bit of time left, which is really yeah, yeah. blockchain in ed tech. Right? Yes. What are the use cases? Why is this important? Why, why are you guys even getting involved in, in blockchain? Right? So. And, and, and as you answer yeah. this, can you maybe tie it back to, uh, I saw as I was researching your bio, I saw oh the chief of the Committee Future Technology at U.S. Department of Education with a photo that kind of resembles you, but uh, <laughs> can you kind of talk about that title and, and, and in yeah, yeah. maybe blockchain? <laughs> okay, so that was a great week because that was a photo of a Korean supermodel, and so I was trying to make the point that actually how you represent yourself in the world is based on trust, right? So this was for a talk that I did at ISTE um, just last month, and it was called Trust Me, right? Um, and I think I was making a point that actually most of what you see on the internet could be true or could not be true. Um, and where that's important is how I'm representing myself to you for additional opportunities, right? So mm -hmm. I think um, this is really interesting, right? So people see things, right? And they see you because I'm in, like, for example, I'm interviewing for a job. Sure. And I'm going to tell you I went to Harvard and then MIT and then Caltech. Well, is that true? I don't know. It, there is a mechanism that you now need to, to check, right? Um, but what if it's what if it's more granular than that? What if you're hiring um, for a software engineer and I tell you, but I know how to write all of these languages. Like I'm super good at all of these. Um, how do how do you know? Right? You can give me a test. Right? Does it matter to you then ultimately if I finish my degree? If I just finish three quarters of my degree? Um, so this is a really important question that we have a lot of times because we know that students um, who graduate who don't graduate but have um, some credits um, are not seen at all the same as someone who even just had a certificate from like a six month long program, right? Um, and it's because employers don't see all of the other skills that went towards almost completing a degree, right? So what if you could say to someone, these are all the things that I know how to do. These are the artifacts of my learning, right? I have learned these from the internet, from my colleagues, from formerly the classroom, from previous jobs I've had. I am, this is the complete picture of all of the things that I can do for you and how I can contribute to your company. You can see me in a completely different way than if I said, I actually didn't finish college. Um, this is a very different way um, of communicating value. Um, and for the person that's able to say, look at the whole of my person and all of the things I'm able to do, they have significantly more opportunity yeah. to progress, right? Um, and I think one part of this is changing the narrative for students to be able to obviously be more confident in saying what they can do, even if they're not a student or not a graduate, right? But at the same time, like there is an infrastructure, I think that makes this possible. And so when we looked at blockchain and a lot of the solutions that people pitched us as pilot projects through our EDU 23rd challenge were related to blockchain. So they said things like, well, what if individuals 
um, owned this data and they collected it in these wallets and then they could share, but you knew they were true because, you know, if I did go to Caltech, they wrote it to my blockchain, right? I didn't like just write it. You could tell right away. Or what if you were, and what if you were searching for a skill? Would there be some sort of version of a smart contract that you could look for me, right? Or if I don't know what I want to do, which is actually the state of my life most of the time, could you? Could there be some sort of AI-based wayfinding that could collect some of my experiences and make recommendations for the next step? I mean, I think oh, this, this is, is like very early, but yeah. Say, no, this is awesome. There was a lot of potential. I, I think there was a you know university in Texas that was doing this at some point, uh, talking about credentialing. We might get to that individual later on the show. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. But we're seeing it everywhere. I mean, even companies like Workday just announced credentialing about a few weeks yep. ago using the blockchain for skills. Uh, we're seeing this all across the board, and this is definitely something we should be following because it takes the power back to the individual. Because now LinkedIn is basically what you want the world to know about you. Right. Blockchain and credentialing is basically what the world really knows about you. And I think we're going to see that thing. So yeah. this is awesome. We are here with Sharon Liu, principal yeah. executive. <laughs> principal <laughs> and, the, and the Korean supermodel. <laughs> and Korean supermodel at U.S. Department yeah. of Education. You can follow her at Twitter at the Sharon Liu, L-E-U. Thank you so much for being on Disrupt TV. Sharon, you were terrific. Thank Great you. to meet you all. Yeah, nice meeting you as well. That was awesome. That, that you know, those are fantastic use cases. And um, it, it's definitely... Uh, it's definitely a future. And by the way, if you're wondering, uh, Chief Digital Evangelist is my real title, you know. <laughs> Do you put credential for that? Uh, on an immutable distributed ledger yet, but it is definitely. <laughs> well, I believe, I believe Salesforce has some kind of chain there that might be there, but hey, we'll see. So who do we have now? What are we talking about here in terms of credentials? This is a great so. segue from Sharon, another incredible thought leader and a pioneer in this space. Manoj Kadi's founder and CEO of Greenlight Credentials. Uh, Manoj is a successful entrepreneur in IT and education. He's the founder and CEO of Greenlight Credentials, a blockchain technology platform that enables users to own and instantly share their academic records and workforce credentials, exactly what the future will hold for students and, and employers. Prior to Greenlight, Manoj was the founder and CEO of LoudCloud Systems, a leading SaaS LMS, and an analytics platform that was successfully sold and is currently part of Barnes & Noble education. Prior to Lad Cloud, Manoj worked for Tata Group as president of Tata Interactive uh, and led its North America practice and business. You can follow Manoj on Twitter at YTTUKM. Welcome, Manoj, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot for joining us. I mean, this topic, I mean, we've, people have been looking for blockchain use cases for a long time. Provenance of data is a hot area, right? And especially when it comes to the problem that we have, and luckily it's a great problem, it's a high class problem in the US, which is we can't find enough workers, right? We can't find enough skilled workforce, right? And people are literally looking to figure out what that gap is. So what does the problem Greenlight solves uh, for customers? You know, uh, when we started this project a couple of years ago, uh, the ITT technical institutes had just shut down. And uh, the chancellor in Dallas, the Dallas County Community Colleges, was asked by the DOE at that stage if he could recruit, if DCCC could recruit some of those students, enroll some of those students into, into the college. And he soon realized that the registrar's offices had also shut down. And there was just no way to verify the student records, the student credentials, which really comes to the heart of what your earlier guest Sharon was talking about. The reason 
that educational institutions require another educational institution to send them the records, as opposed to we sending the records, is they don't trust us. They trust the educational records only when it's delivered or sent to them from another educational institution. So we turned around and said, ah, the trust solution can be resolved using blockchain. And so that was really the genesis of blockchain, uh, of blockchain within, within Greenlight and, and, our, uh, and our application. But beyond that, there are a bunch of other problems that you can, uh, that you can solve. Wait, you just mentioned about this, the big challenge about finding uh, adequately trained employees. Do you really know whether the person who's listed himself as a highly experienced Java programmer uh, with great problem solving skills on, on his LinkedIn profile is really who he claims to be. Uh, and if you're a college admissions counselor or an enrollment manager, you're trying to recruit students into college, how easy or challenging is it for you to find students today? You know, we, uh, the penny really dropped uh, when, uh, when we were building this platform and we realized one, one of the challenges, the central challenge that when we, when we started was how do you reduce barriers for students to get into college and into employment? Mm -hmm. And here we were fortunate to work with the Dallas Independent School District, the Dallas County Community Colleges, and the University of North Texas to get this going. Reducing barriers means a lot of different things. Many of these students from economically backward uh, uh, places here in Dallas, first time going into college, they don't even know how to complete a college application form. Mm -hmm. Uh, lots of challenges that you and I wouldn't even think about. You know, you misspell, misspell your name, you're Ray Wang in high school, and you might have taken a, a certificate course as Raymond Wang, and uh, your medical shots might have been listed under some other name. And getting all of that together, reconciling your identity before you apply, is just a big challenge. How do you do all of that together? But Manoj, I really did get my degree from IIT Bombay, and went to Stanford for my master's, and got my Harvard Business School degree. Come on, it's real. You don't believe it? I figured that. <laughs> it's all those things I read about him that got me interested in being a co-host with him. Um, it's all fake. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I read a Forbes interview uh, that you gave, and you said, um, and this stood out for me, that in 20 years, students won't be applying for colleges colleges will be recruiting students. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, you know, our central thesis was, okay, how do you reduce barriers for students to get into college, right? And one of the mm -hmm. things you said is, the vast majority of students apply to colleges about 30 to 50 miles around where they live. Yeah. And, uh, and we said, how can we change this? Uh, you know, there's, a, there's, let's say a college in California that is struggling to enroll students, but it's a high quality liberal arts institute as an example college that we know. And uh, there are high school students here in Dallas who just don't know that college exists right. and are not even thinking of applying to that college. Now, if these students, if there's one way for these colleges in California or elsewhere who could see the detailed academic records of the students here in Dallas, they would be able to proactively engage with these students and recruit them into college. Think about this. What do colleges really invest in? scouts mm. to go out and find a basketball player or a football player. Mm. And if they want to really find a student in academics, they have access to very few data points, the SAT scores, the ACT scores. They don't know how well you're doing in freshman math. They don't know how you've done well in science or ge uh, geography. They're hoping that your, your you know, advisor in high school is going to be able to recommend that college to you. And you don't have that, uh, uh, you know, you, Many students don't have access to those kind of uh, yeah. capabilities. 
No, I was going to say, this is really interesting, right? Because what you're basically saying here is the market dynamics are going to flip. The common app destroyed everything. It put the advantage to the universities. But with blockchain, we're going to invert this and put credentialing at the hands of students so that it becomes the students that are being targeted as opposed to the students targeting the universities. Exactly. And it's not, you know, when you are a college uh, counselor, for that matter, even if you're an employer, um, how do you really quickly and instantly uh, verify every student credential of a student, right? And how do you, how, how do you access that and how do you verify that? Uh, this, this technology today allows you to do that because using blockchain, you're storing all your records yeah. and it's not just your high school records, but you might have taken three certification courses, you might have done your swim meets, you might have uh, done some internships, you may have some great recommendation letters from your faculty members or your employers. All of that life body of achievement, which is verified, can be instantly shared with any third party. But keep in mind, one of the central tenets in this is data privacy. You've got to basically provide the consent mechanism to students to opt in and opt out. The privileges that they might want to share this only to Salesforce or to every employer or to one institution or to every institution and be able to revoke that at any given point of time. Once you build that consent mechanism inside, you know, you're really incenting students or users of the platform to share their records with third parties and those third parties will be able to instantly find. Now, the good news is Greenlight went live last week at uh, the DCCD Community Colleges. We are the largest education blockchain application in the world. Uh, yeah, when we started out, DCCD wanted only the students who graduate and transfer out this year on the platform. That's about 100,000 students. Very soon, the registrars loved what they saw, and they put 1.7 million user records. Every student, every alum who's graduated from 1965. That's now, take this. The first week that when we went live, more than 500 students, as old as those who graduated in 1987, shared their transcripts with colleges around the country from Oregon State University to the University of Florida, the University of Texas to community colleges around the state and around the country. So it validated the use case that a kid sitting in his bedroom could now send the, his or her transcripts to an employer or to a college without having to call the registrar's office and get all of his credentials put together and then shared out. That's awesome. You, know, you gotta get Manoj, you got to work on your excitement and passion. You know, we need to. <laughs> <laughs> like a CEO I'm coming I'm out of the screen. That's awesome. <laughs> but, 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 oh, talk about someone who this. finds joy in what he does. That's really cool. Really cool. But, you know, when you think about, when you think about listening to, for example, Professor Clay Christensen at Harvard Business School, where he talked about an, uh, an Apple iOS closed system versus Android open system, and said in the future, if a student wants to learn from the best English teacher in, 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 in Maryland, the best uh, chemistry teacher in, in California, and so on and so forth, they should be able to attend any school, any course with the best teachers and be able to have those credentials at aggregate uh, be validated and, and, and it, so, so more of an Android OS. Do you think blockchain is a prerequisite for that vision to come to reality? Absolutely. Brilliant. Uh, so for instance, let's say you are a student in Dallas Independent School District. Right. You're, you're a high school student not doing very well in math. If you consent to have your records viewed by 
uh, other math tutors or teachers, they might actually be able to engage with you. And this might be either uh, through a scholarship or it might be you know, done through the school. But here could be a mentor who could basically work with you, engage with you, and get you college ready. But it could also be that you're a high pro, uh, you know, a student who's doing very well yeah. and who would like to take, let's say, a course in French, which is not offered by the DISD. Now, it could be done by a third party uh, uh, institution or a professor sitting outside of DISD, yeah. and DISD might give him or her credit for having completed that. What it does is two things one is it becomes easy to complete this transaction, and second, it becomes easy to record the completion of this transaction. And third, it becomes easy to verify that this transaction has been completed, Absolutely. all of which can be done. So I think fundamentally in many ways, I think in the next couple of years, I thought 20 years it would take for, you know, for colleges to find, I'm willing to say it's going to be five years now. <laughs> and, by giving, and by giving the student population more choices in terms of where they're going to invest their dollars and time and energy, you force the institutions to produce better quality content and better products. So there's going to be a competition that's going to be driven from the students because now they can take their courses across a spectrum of institutions and that validation and trust framework plus consent is built into the system. So I think it's absolutely the future. Just like we mentioned, you know, we, we talked about the 2030 initiative. We're closer to 2030 than we were in 2000. In 2000, we didn't have the mobile revolution that started in 07. We didn't have social networks. There were, we didn't, there were so many things we didn't have. So to project what the you know, university or learning experience is gonna look like 11 years from now, I mean, I don't think any of us are smart enough to know what 11 years from now will look like, but it will not look like today, that's for sure. You know, and what's really exactly. interesting here, I mean, Manoj, is like you have an opportunity because of Texas, the way Texas is set up. You can go to like Mike Morat and pretty much say, look, every student should have this from day one, every single K through 12 entity. And by aggregating state by state at that level, you'll, you'll be able to get everyone, you'll be able to democratize access for everybody uh, at that point. Right, and this consent piece that you're talking about, that is key, right? At the, the universities consent to actually provide you with you know, the skills, the degrees, the certifications that you actually have, along with those, even in secondary education or primary education, and you get to reveal what you wanna reveal at that point, and that's up to you, right? And having that two-way consent opens up that two-sided marketplace in a way that doesn't happen uh, in, in, in any other marketplace today, um, especially for this type of data. Now, what, how do you see hiring managers um, getting a better outcome with uh, what you guys are doing than the folks that don't have this? Like, what changes for that hiring manager? I think that is, that's a great question. You know, when we started out, one of the first people that I met with was the, the CEO of an association of hospitals here called the DFW Hospital Association. And Steve mentioned a very interesting point to me. He said that, you know, just every week, we have to say no to someone who applies to us because they don't have access to their academic record. So we go to the next person. The registrar's offices are shut down or something else. And so we just, there's the superintendent of a high school district who told me that he keeps three copies of his verified academic records sealed in an envelope that he can send it out instantly when you know, he wants to apply to a new position. I think this, is what, this changes the ability for employers to instantly validate an employee's uh, resume. But more importantly, I think it also can fundamentally shift. You know, you, you ask most employers and they say, 
we don't really care about verifying a student's credentials. Uh, you know, we ask them, where did you study? And what GPA did you get? But they don't really go deep inside for, for a simple reason that it's too expensive to, to process that. And as we have started talking to employers, they've come back and said that if it was easy and if it was cheap, we would do it. Mm. Fraud is prevalent. In fact, uh, one of the largest uh, 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 job board agencies told us that over 50% of the resumes have some element of fraud wow. in their database, 58% actually. So, so I think that problem can be resolved. But the other thing is we were talking to a, a large employer here in Texas and they said, you know, while we're not interested in the GPA, et cetera, if there's a way by which we could filter and say, this math professor we know is a great math professor who taught me when I was in school. And what grades did he give to those students? I know that, that uh, you know, there's great everywhere, but we know that this faculty member is good. And we want to check that faculty member's grades that he had given to the students. There's just no way to do that today, easily, quickly. Technology like this makes it possible to do that. In Michigan, for instance, over 70%, I think, of the jobs that entry-level jobs that are offered are by small-scale uh, uh, businesses. Small-scale businesses don't have the ability to do all this stuff uh, cheaply, efficiently, effectively. And that's where the most hiring is taking place. And I think that's where we can make a difference. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, we had, a, we had a, 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 a government representative as our first guest on the show, and I think about the near million U.S. men and women veterans. 90% uh, of them don't make, uh, you know, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines as their career. So if there were micro-credentials in the government or in the, in the armed forces where you can, where you don't spend five years learning how to operate the most sophisticated machinery in the world, and then you start in freshman courses because there's no link between universities and, and armed forces to recognize the incredible amount of experience and knowledge that these veterans have in the four, six, 10 year careers that they have, short careers before they go into the you know, general public and society. So I think micro-credentials and trusted frameworks can really help in that model at the same time, we just talked about small businesses. 50% uh, of small businesses fail within the first five years. That impacts roughly 2 million families on an annual basis. So if we can create this uh, framework that where we can have proper trained individuals helping grow these small businesses, the impact to economy and GDP could be immense. So it's, I'm sorry, this is not a question. It's just comment about, you know, you're doing incredible work and, uh, you know, so, uh, but I think the applicability is, is, is very strong across other sectors, including government. All right, switching gears, startup founder, CEO, you know, you had the background with uh, Tata Interactive, definitely good training ground, um, good experience. Um, what's the startup community like in Dallas, in that wow. Frisco area? What's happened in Frisco, Plano? We know that area is like on fire. We know there's a lot of AI folks because of Sabre, right? But what, what happened? What's going on right there right now? Well, I, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, talent in uh, North Texas. Um, uh, entrepreneurship is thriving. I mean, it's not just in technology, but in different industries. Uh, and, uh, you know, we couldn't be more bullish about the, you know, for, for us, for us early stage company like us, the ability to recruit talent uh, for folks to come in and basically believe that this company is going to be successful 
give away, uh, give up a big paycheck to come and work out. We've been just fortunate. And, and I think uh, it just, uh, you know, we are just one, one company amongst many out here that uh, has been able to set up roots and grow fast. Let me help you out. Housing costs in Frisco, Plano, about $150 a square feet, right? Get a brand new house in great suburbs, awesome training grounds. Think of how many consultants live in Dallas, right? With technical skills that are around there and technical headquarters, a lot of, you know, a lot of expertise, and you're two hours from both coasts. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, uh, California is very expensive, you know that. Oh my God, we're, we're, we're $1,100 a square feet where we live. <laughs> Great. Places. Sell your house, move to Boston, and buy a mansion. <laughs> I'm in, man. I'll get something on the Cape. You know, I'm just <laughs> I'm going to Frisco. I love Frisco. I mean, I, I've been there multiple times. I'm like, this is amazing. And no state income tax, right? There you go. I, add that to the add that to your mix. No state right? income taxes. Yeah, there are some benefits there as well. So, all right, this is awesome. We're going back to back on blockchain, higher education credentialing. We're with Manoj Kudi, founder and CEO at Greenlight Credentials. You can follow him on Twitter at YTTUKM. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you very much. You were terrific. Hey, well Thank you. Wow. This is why Friday is our favorite time, Ray. Like extraordinary people come and they teach us stuff. I mean, I don't know how we... I don't know how we got to where we got to, but this is great. And now this is our cleanup hitter spot. This is where we bring someone who hits a grand slam and brings everything home. And thankfully, our next guest who could pitch 100 miles an hour and was recruited by the Boston Red Sox is a perfect guest to end this week's segment. <laughs> no pressure at all here. Never, no. never. <laughs> Thank you. And there isn't a blockchain to validate this, but Google his name. He was recruited by the Red Sox. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and he pitched a no-hitter and lost. That's my, that's my icebreaker, Bala. That's <laughs> the one I always use. Don't know. I don't Wait know. A minute. How do you pitch a no-hitter and lost? He, so hit, he, hit the, he, he hit the batters and they made it around the bases. <laughs> it happens. It happens. That was a bit wild, but uh, yeah, I had some raw talent. So, Phil is Vice President of Innovation at Salesforce. He's highly social, entrepreneurial, award-winning senior executive with 25-year track record of delivering innovation, high-value solutions, and aligning existing problems with emerging technologies. I've known Phil for over a decade, and he embodies an innovative executive. He's experienced C-level. He was a former CEO of a startup. He was a chief digital officer of one of the largest universities in the world and a CIO, an award-winning CIO that was featured on Time Magazine. So he's leveraged his entrepreneurial instincts, broad technical skill set to develop strong reputation for building high-performance teams, who leverage technology to create stakeholder value, stakeholder value for employees, partners, customers, and communities that they serve. He's currently focused on blockchain and identity as how it applies for lifelong learning during what the World Economic Forum has dubbed the fourth industrial revolution. He's one of the best people I know. He's one of my favorite people at Salesforce. He is uh, universally loved by anyone who's ever worked with him. Um, I consider him a mentor and someone who I go to when I need advice on technology. So the greatest mystery in life for me is why this guy has 100,000 plus followers on Twitter. So if you want to do yourself a favor, follow Phil Cromani on Twitter at P-H-I-L-K-O-M-O-R-N-Y. Welcome, my friend, to Disrupt TV. 
Well, thank you, Vala. That's way, way, way too kind. You guys, I know both of you, you're my friends. You still make me nervous every time I'm on the show. So with those kind of introductions, it always happens. But Listen, thank you. Listen, nervous all the time. So we're, we're in the same camp, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Look, hey, you know, when I first met you, University of Texas, right? You know, you were an early pioneer in blockchain. Standards weren't there. Concept models weren't there. Very, very hard to execute. Right? But you were talking about how you get blockchain and education together. And now looking back, like three, four years back, I mean, this is crazy. So let's, let's set some context, right? Because like, it's yeah. almost as if every guest on the show fits perfectly into this conversation for you today, right? All at once. I don't know how that happened. I don't know either. <laughs> it must be a good producer or something. But the point thing is like, you know, tell us about the work you completed at UTX uh, before you joined Salesforce, right? Because it seems like an awesome progression here. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great opportunity, Ray, uh, to work at the University of Texas system under Bill McRaven, the chancellor there, being, you know, somebody who was really thinking about taking that system and leading it in a direction through this. His, his vision included what he called quantum leaps. So thinking, just putting ourselves in the mindset of quantum leaps, because we all grew up in that era around that TV show and these big changes we were going to make. And we were, we were really tasked through this Institute of Transformational Learning to kind of build a, a technology that would kind of power some of those quantum leaps for, for us for a system. And really, we, we looked at uh, how this 14 institution system ran. There's 14 really great institutions in the system. And, and looked at really 68% of those students go to three or more of those institutions before they graduate. And all the processes, all the workflows, everything we're doing internally at each one of those institutions is set up to think that we keep them there for four years and graduate them when that's not reality today. So by taking like a really hard look at what we were actually doing and uh, setting up a, a set of services at the center at the system, we, we use Salesforce and CRM as the basis of a student's profile. And then we started to create ways, I called them productized integrations to move data from PeopleSoft and Banner to really big ERP systems in the education space, and then two learning systems from Canvas and Blackboard. And how can we create integrations that gave our CIOs the ability to move that data in service of learners back into a profile that would persist with them across any one of our 14 schools? So it was really, that's where the blockchain really started to excite me about the, the, the possibilities of what that would mean, not just for that, that infrastructure, but what do it mean for somebody's motivation when they had their marketable skill, what they learned, not NA in English, but what did that equate to in their pocket that would be valuable in the job market? Those, those, that's what we were really interested in. And that's why we went with the blockchain way back in 2015, inspired by Philip Schmidt at MIT and some of the work he did there. We just took it a little step further and didn't just write a receipt to a grade on the blockchain or receipt to the transcript, but we were translating what those things were into marketable skills, and that's what we were releasing I to mean, the state. I mean, you were early for credentialing and skills, but you're also leading up to this whole movement around competency-based. Right, right. right. And we were, I, think, I think that's the tie-in that's so critical here. I do too. I think our leader there was uh, Dr. Marty Baker Stein, who's now at uh, the provost or uh, the leader, leading learning at Western Governors University that has a very big competency based model. So I think that you're right, Ray, is trying to devolve or decompose uh, a, a curricular offering through a degree into these, into these competency based job ideas. You know, what, what are the skills needed to, to equate to, to, to build the talent for this, for this, for this, uh, for this, you know, 
economy that we have. That was really that alignment. I think competency-based uh, job descriptions are in our future. And I think that's, that's one really great part of this new architecture that we get to work with to try to reinvent the way we deliver education more equi equitably to, this, to this, this country and the world. That's awesome. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking that in uh, mid-2000, you were CIO of a college which was first in the country to go 100% mobile. And then around 2011, you were talking to machines using social networks. Now yeah. you build a blockchain framework in 2015. So do you only work on projects that are five to 10 years ahead? Always, of always. You know, <laughs> you know what, I found, what I found though is I've been, I've been early to many parties in my life. I've, I've said this a lot, but you know what? I think technology is catching up to my speed to in, enter a party. So I think we're starting to align with our timing now. And like look at our last two guests. With, with, with Manoj, who I worked, I, I, you know, I knew him in Texas. We were really, were really uh, aligned with our thinking. And, and Sharon from like the Department of Ed, who we, again, we worked together. We, we were talking about this at UT with her as well. Seeing this starting to progress this quickly, it's only been a couple of years since I left Texas. Yeah. And to see this actually in the world, like with 1.7 million student records in it and people sharing them already, Manoj has done an amazing job to move that ball forward. And I think he's starting to, start to have these conversations about what this could mean. Not, I don't think anybody has solved this. I don't think it's any one company is to solve either. I think we're getting to a point where the internet has got us to where we are in 50 years. And it's connected 50% of the planet, like you said earlier, V. But how can we take this and add trust to that, to that, to that digital space and make it, make it a more equitable place? I think it's gonna revolve around identity, but I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. So again, going back to the UT experience, we were using that distributed ledger for the universities. That was their, it was their architecture. And the data was still going to reside in their control, but with this new, this new layer. Extending that to these, to these self-sovereign identities in the future, I think, is the new hub of that data. So we think about chains that are operating. I think the, the hub might be somebody's own identity and how they take that data and use it in service of themselves. That's just an idea. I just think it's in the future. Go ahead, Ray. Sorry. Well, well, that hub too, right, is operating a couple of service lines, right? One is that, that trust validation, the one's consent as a service. The yeah. other piece is really about operating what smart contracts are in that marketplace for the matching engines, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's where it gets very, very interesting. So, and, 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 you know, I, I know I mentioned earlier that at, you know, Workday's done announced credentialing, um, mm -hmm. piece of efforts that they talked about. They got, you know, I, I can't say how many customers they have. I, I'm under NDA, but the point being is, at Trailhead DX, there's also an announcement about yeah. blockchain and skills, right? So, yeah. you know, we're seeing this happen with a whole bunch of blockchain use cases. What are the ones that you're trying to accomplish there? So, yeah, we're, I, I, can, you, can you explain to our audience what was Trailhead DX, just for those folks that are not familiar with it? Sure. I mean, everybody knows about our, our, our larger conference called Dreamforce that happens once a year. It's like a very large uh, event. But Trailhead DX is more aligned to our developers and admins, more of a hands-on, more of a really uh, not, I'll say not like initial, when somebody's trying to understand our platform, that's a really great time to visit, to, to visit Dreamforce and understand our whole HANA and how this all works. But DX is really focused at, you know, having these conversations with people in, in our world, having, you know, using our software. So that's what DX has really done. And it's really grown crazily over the last couple of years. And I think Sarah Franklin, the, the head of Trailhead is doing an amazing job, not just with Trailhead as a platform, but how she's inspired this development community and how they have come together around that, that, that uh, conference is just absolutely amazing. 
And we, we introduced uh, uh, our own blockchain uh, endeavor at that conference, and we used uh, a, couple a couple of our partners to prove, to, just to show some proofs of concept on it, because I think the blockchain by itself is pretty boring. I mean, really, it's what it, what, it needs a really good use case. And I think everybody in the world thinks they have one, but really, out of the thousand that I've heard, there's probably 10 that are really valuable. And three of them that we showed at the event one really uh, spoke, we'll, we'll talk about that today because it's about education, was with Arizona State and how we could allow Arizona State and a community college in California to be able to take a student's record. And once they leave their engagement at community college and transfer over here to, over here to Arizona State, how can they consent to the use of, the, what, of their success at Arizona State to back credit them with an associate's degree at the, at the community college after they've done some work here at Arizona State? So we, we chose that use case because it was very, there was wins all over the place. Wins for Arizona State, wins for the community college, wins for the student. So it was a really great way to show the power of this, this, plot, this, uh, this protocol through like a way that data is already being created and used, but there's no way to really see it. And there's no way to make it visible or actionable. So that's what we were able to do with this. But the integration between Salesforce's CRM and this blockchain, which we used Hyperledger Sawtooth for this for this um, for the Salesforce blockchain that we have out there today, and we're going to hope it's going to connect to multiple blockchains. The connection piece, clicks not code, the first the, the first blockchain ever connected to a CRM that way. I think it's going to it's going to empower our our customers to really investigate these cooperation models inside their industries with their own partners, and I think that's where we're going to see a lot of uptake with these distributed ledgers in the near term future with people creating what we're calling trust networks. And I think the trust network that we created with, P with uh, Arizona State around this POC was called the Trusted Learner Network. And what's that trusted learner record gonna look like? So that work's being done now and extended with Arizona State. So seeing the whole industry kind of come together around that proof of concept has blown my mind. We've had so many people um, I haven't, I can't believe my voice is working. I, all I've been doing is talking about this and what, what, what this could mean for folks. Even this week, I spent uh, some time with the Associated Association of all the college, community college presidents at their summer retreat. Uh, Joe May, uh, the chancellor from Dallas Community Colleges and I, uh, presented this idea around blockchain. He actually represented some of the work they were doing with Greenlight in, in Dallas. But when you get those presidents outside of the mindset of tokenization and Bitcoin, it's like, wow, you see just light bulbs over everybody's head just going off. So I think we've kind of inspired people to start to think differently. And I think that's what, what this of what this blockchain, you know, on Salesforce could do is extend that, the trust that we've got. It's a delicious paradox where the cryptocurrency is perhaps the most uh, successful use sure. of blockchain. Sure. At the same time, perception of cryptocurrency, um, it, it makes people a little bit worried about right. in other, uh, you know, use cases. So, right. so it's funny that way, but yeah. yeah I, I, call it, I call it crypto confusion. That's what, 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 what basically, yeah. Sorry, right? Oh, it's a $200 billion market cap. So yeah, I mean, right, right. It's going away. You know, at least Bitcoin's at 10,000 finally. I um, know. But that's not the point. The point is the fact that blockchain use cases, as you're saying, right? You know, the most popular use case is Bitcoin, but the most useful use case is going to be this provenance of data. Okay. Right? I think so. provenance of data is so huge. But that leads to building different types of architectures in higher ed. And I think, you know, one of the things that people don't know is like, you're, you're a higher ed expert. Right. I mean, this is your passion. Um, tell us all this, uh, this new type of architecture pairing the future of learning and that new world of work. 
Yeah, I think we, to get to that, Ray, we have to really, uh, really care about somebody's profile. I mean, so it goes back to the work we were doing at UT, like the wrong progressive persistent profile, we called it. So I think that profile is already being solved with CRMs and people around the country are really using that to power their organizations today. I think the two pieces that we see now that are becoming very interesting because of the blockchain, I think is digital badging, like real digital badging, open badge infrastructure, OBI 2.0 is something where large uh, tech companies like Amazon, uh, large employers like Walmart are using these, this, this badging metadata to really identify the skills and knowledge and abilities that their, their workforces have. And I, you're seeing this start to have an uptake inside of education as well. So that's one component of it. The other side of that digital Rosetta Stone I'm calling is these skills-based frameworks for industry. And MZ and some other folks are doing some really great work to, to define those and make them open. When we have those two pieces of architecture and we have a way to trust the data which, we re which resides on that blockchain, I think those three pieces come together to give us a way to really solve for a lifelong learning adventure with multiple providers of education. Not, I, I, I go to one college and think I'm gonna graduate from there. I think graduation means dying. It isn't like, it's a, you graduate when you die. Because yeah. if, if you're not learning in this world forever, you're, you, should just, you should just pack it in. <laughs> Instead of multi-cloud, I'm going to multi-source my education from multi-cloud. There you go. Well, that's, right. what I, that's what I I got find. a 30% degree from uh, back to IIT India, and I got 30% degree from, like, you know, a community right. college, and 10% right. from, like, you know, Coursera, and, and the last right. part of the degree, boom. And, you know, right. I, I picked it up at Danza College in Cupertino. Look at that. I've been done. 30% from watching Disrupt TV. We're going to that's right. That's right. Oh, that's right. You get credits for watching Disrupt TV based on how many yeah. questions you ask and hours. You know. the best and brightest come and yeah. share ideas. But speaking of best and brightest, and this is breaking news, so you don't have to talk about it, uh, but you are co-authoring a book about lifelong learning. Uh, you don't have to reveal the title, you don't have to reveal the publication date, but I'm going to be one of the first to buy your book. Uh -huh. In this book you talk about, you, you will be talking about, you know, the 60-year the lifelong learning plan. And as a change agent, knowing that in the fourth industrial revolution, this digital economy, the most important skill you have is to stay teachable. Oh, yeah. What advice do you have for CEOs that are watching our show and business leaders that are watching and they're struggling with creating this culture of always being teachable? What can they do in addition to follow you on Twitter? What can they do to stay teachable? I don't know. Incentiv incentivize courageous people. I mean, it's good, to be, it's good to be wrong today. It's moving so fast and technologies are emerging so quickly. I think it, it instilled, you know, Bill McRaven, Chancellor McRaven, Admiral McRaven, so he really instilled something in me at UT was, you can't get to greatness by being timid. And he's totally right. And I think today in this, in this world with the movement of technology so fast and how it's changing the way we operate any business through AI and automation, if you don't be courageous and be wrong sometimes, but move it forward, you're gonna be left behind and there is no being left behind today. This is, this is, this is uh, foundational to the future, I think. And being just, you know, really creating chief courage officers, I call some folks that I work with, like Corey Snow at Harvard is a great guy who really, really takes a, a courageous person to have those conversations. It's a great, it's a great thing to see though. I, lo I love it. Did you bring oh, that as a CEO? Because you, you, were, you were a CEO of one of the fastest growing startups um, in North America, and you went from zero to 200 some odd employees in short years. Yeah. Um, did, you, did, you, did you create a culture where people weren't afraid of failure, they were afraid of blame, 
So you right. made sure that that was not part of the ethos as you were, you know, experiencing hyper growth. Yeah, as long as you celebrated failure for being failed, if you failed first, it was a celebration. You failed second, that was a problem. So <laughs> we wanted, we wanted, we, we were, we were really, we created a culture of learning. It's a, it's an always learning culture, robots and pencils, and th th that culture was there before I got there. Just bringing it here to this country it was a Canadian company was very exciting to me. And I think we had the success we did because of the way we integrate, interacted with our, with our, not only our customers, but our own employees and our, our, our partners and everybody on our team around different ways to think about how a software development company could run. So they're, they're, the doing, they're doing well. Say again? You feel the same about Salesforce? Oh yeah, I do. I think this is the largest startup I've ever, I've never worked at a big company before and I don't think I still do because of the that way this feels inside. No, that was the software. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> All right. Wait, well, hey, some, some great, some great comments here from uh, Ed Schlesinger. Uh, he's uh, watching. Oh, another pioneer. Commencement. Commencement. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. <laughs> you know, so we get some other good stuff. Um, hey, look, you know, we are coming to the end and I really do apologize. This has been awesome. I mean, it's always good catching up with you, thinking about where, where higher ed's heading, blockchain, new technologies. We're here with Phil Kamani, Vice President of Innovation at Salesforce. You can follow him on Twitter at P-H-I-L-K-O-M-A-R-N-Y. And uh, definitely a pleasure to have you back, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. See you. Yeah, programming notes. Oh, real quick, some yeah. programming notes from Aubrey. We had Sarah Franklin, the head of Trailhead, uh, on our show. I can't remember what episode it is. I'm sure it's going to pop up here soon. And, uh, but more importantly, I mean, this has been an awesome episode talking about credentialing, blockchain skills, the future of work, where things are happening, higher ed, all in one action-packed 60 minutes. This is crazy. It is. It is. And I tell you, we've got some courageous trailblazers and change agents. Zachary Jeans, who I saw a comment pop up, talk about courage and someone who's spent his whole life dedicated to making his stakeholders successful. Ed Schlesinger, I mean, a pioneer. He was doing things with CRM 10 years ago that probably 99% of people aren't doing yet today. So again, and Phil Kamani and others. So it was just an incredible episode. And uh, we've got some, fortunately for you and I, we're surrounded by these incredible, you know, courage, courageous individuals that are really trying to leverage technology to do good. Speaking of technology and doing good, next week, episode 156, we're getting close to 156. Oh my God, man. We've got Betty Nig, uh, builder of inclusive, collaborative, high-performing organization, author of polling, power speaker, and tech entrepreneur as our first guest. We have Heaton Shaw, co-founder uh, of FYI, Product Habits, and Crazy Egg. He's an incredible follow on Twitter with over 100,000 followers. And, you know, a verified thought leader who I often reference in my feed. And, of course, one of the smartest tech analysts in the world, friend of yours and mine, Esteban Kolsky, principal and founder of ThinkJar. So next week is going to be incredibly high-impact wisdom nuggets that are going to come at <laughs> Ray, myself, and our guests and audience. So closing remarks, Ray. Hey, look, it's a really exciting world. I want people to understand that blockchain is not Bitcoin. I want people to understand that a lot of these innovations are going to trickle in. These things don't get slammed in right away. It requires a lot of change, a lot of fortitude. We have some awesome guests on board making this happen. If you know people just like that in different areas of technology, different industries, please let Bala and I know. We want to feature them here on Disrupt TV. So thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Friday, episode 156. Bye, everyone. All right, bye, Ryan. Happy.